Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Okay, yeah, this time it's going, and I'm seeing it's recording. It's got the file size, and it's creasing in value. So, yes, it, it is recording. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where this time out, I'm not going to co-opt a song from Avenue Q. This is where the party ends I can't stand here listening to you And your racist friend Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Sean Ingle, and it's my job to cover the comic books featuring Green Lantern, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending in cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. This time, we're going to be putting a special emphasis, if I can get that word out, on Kyle Rayner and Connor Hawk, the Green Arrow. In fact, we're going to be covering three issues this time out, uh, more predominantly Green Arrow than Green Lantern, but it's the hate crime story arc, where Green Arrow and Green Lantern team up to take on one of Ollie's uh, sort of retconned big bads, Nicholas Catero, a person who might have metahuman powers to manipulate people to hate each other. There's uh, racism going on, and well, we'll just see how heavy-handed it is. But fortunately for me, I'm not going to have to cover all three of these issues alone. I've got the one and only podcaster who is the, how shall I say it? He is the representative of uh, the Latvian Embassy. He's also the uh, host of the Quarterbend podcast, the co-host of the Shortbox Showcase, and the co-host of the Book Guys podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, first time on the show, a good friend of mine, Mr. Alan Middleton. Professor Alan how's it going? Hail Doom, Sean. Good to see you, Hail Doom. <laughs> oh, Lord. Do you, are you legally required by the Latvian Embassy to say that? Um, let's just say it helps. Right then, I will make sure that I <laughs> keep that in mind. But yeah, like I said, we're going to be covering these three issues uh, about the hate crime storyline, and uh, we'll be seeing whether or not uh, Chuck Dixon and Ron Mars can keep the sort of uh, <sighs> preachiness out of the books. Let's hope they can. <laughs> But before we get into that, we're going to go ahead and put a couple of promos in here for a couple of podcasts that you should be listening to. Probably one from uh, Professor Allen. I think that would be you. So after we get back from the break, I'm going to let Professor Allen take it over and uh, start with Green Arrow number 125. So stay tuned after the break. Let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hard-working people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of thought. This looks like a job for Superman. Captain America! 
Volunteer! Gentlemen, you're up. <laughs> Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And we are back. So let's go ahead and take a look at Green Arrow number 125. Professor Ellen, take it away. Hey, will do. <laughs> well, I think since we're covering DC books, there oh, is yeah. a mild exception. Hail Darkseid? <laughs> That, we call that competition. So, oh, yes. Hey. <laughs> Green Arrow 125, Hate Crimes, Part 1, The Fiery Furnace. This is written by Chuck Dixon, penciled by Will Rosado and Doug Braithwaite, inked by Robert Campanella and Robin Riggs, colored by Lee Luffridge, letters by John Costanza, edited by Darren Vincenzo, summarized by Professor Allen. Green Arrow is dead. But that does not stop convicted mass murderer Nicholas Catero from dreaming of getting his revenge against the Emerald Archer. All guts and no glory. That's you, Queen. Catero is loaded onto a prison van for transfer from Spokane to Indiana, a road trip that may qualify as cruel and unusual punishment. On the road, Catero does his Gandalf impersonation to trick the federal marshals and the prison guard into arguing with one another. Whether this is a silver tongue of sorts or a hypnotic power, we don't quite know. But amidst the arguing, the prisoner takes an opportunity to grab an officer's gun and escape, singing the whole time. This synopsis will not include singing. You say that, but trust (laughs) me. We move to New York sometime later with hovercrafts um, hovering over the street offering maybe protection, or maybe that's an attack formation. Green Arrow, Connor Hawk, and his sensei, Master Jansen, are shopping with Connor's mother. Connor is still uncomfortable with the fact that his mother is married to an arms dealer, currently under house arrest. Hey, these things happen. He's all through with that life, Connor. Milo Armitage, world-class criminal, is ancient history. Master Jansen advises Connor to tell his mother what he knows about Milo's continued involvement with the Mafia. But Connor insists that simply telling her that Armitage is a douchebag isn't going to work. She must learn of his shady business practices on her own. Without warning, several of the hover ships speed down a busy street and open fire on storefronts owned by members of a range of ethnic groups. Stand aside, move out of the way, real Americans have nothing to fear from us. One of the armed pilots 
opens fire on a crowded street. Connor springs into action with a bow and arrows he uh, liberates from a nearby <laughs> store and engages the gunman. Ends justify the means. Fortunately, help arrives just in time in the form of Green Lantern Kyle Rayner. You're in the city and you didn't call? One of the gunmen fires a Green Lantern and momentarily stuns him. Kyle gets back to his feet and the hover ships speed away. Kyle and Connor share a few words and agree to meet back up later. A pair of business owners, one Korean and one African-American, exchange concerns about the nearby sirens. These men, Bill and Sandy, are clearly good friends. For now. Nicholas Cotero enters an abandoned warehouse, where he is holding a pair of families prisoner in an underground dungeon. He attempts to placate the scared prisoners by saying that they will be fine so long as their loved ones continue to do exactly what Uncle Nicky tells them to do. As promised, Connor and Kyle meet up that evening in the skies near the Statue of Liberty. Did I mention that they were on Ring Construct Pegasi? Mm-hmm. Yeah, flying green horses. Score! Neat. They talk about their respective mentors, and Kyle mentions that he really never got to know his predecessor, Hal Jordan. Connor tells Kyle stories about his father and Hal, though polar opposites in many ways always tried to fight the good fight. Kyle tells Connor that seeing the Statue of Liberty always makes him think of Connor. You're kind of like one-stop multiculturalism. Connor understands what he means. My mom is half Korean, half black. My dad was Irish, I think. My grandfather says there's some Cherokee back there somewhere. After some more reminiscing, the two heroes go out for something to eat on a green ring construct dragon. Mm-hmm. Score! <laughs> At his apartment, Milo Armitage watches a televised broadcast of political commentator August Phipps, a white man who espouses ideas of racial superiority. This man preaches hatred, Master Jansen says. Armitage replies that Phipps knows what's wrong with this country. We've mismanaged our minorities. An African-American commentator, Cyrus Bramlett, also gives an anti-immigrant speech. Viewers watching in a bar, mostly African-American, cheer him on. Nicholas Cotero is present in the bar and exacerbates the issue with a few racially charged quips. A fight breaks out, and after Katero is thrown out the front window, the brawl continues in the street. The police arrive, but as Tempers flare, a trigger-happy officer pulls her weapon and things go awry. Tempers flare, she opens fire, killing an innocent African-American man. Some divisions arise between our Korean and African-American shop owners from earlier in the issue. Some of what he says makes sense, the black man says, referring to Cyrus Bramlett. What part? The part where guys like me have gotten special treatment? Or how they ought to deport my mom back to Seoul? Meanwhile, executives at WGBS affiliates are looking on how to capitalize on the power of August Phipps' commentaries, as well as Cyrus Bramlett's speeches. They're both vile and mean, and they promote hatred and violence. And we have to get them on our stations ASAP! Similar incidents repeat themselves throughout the city, and it doesn't take long before riots break out. Connor and Kyle show up to quell some of the violence, but even they are unsure of the best way to handle the situation. Superpowers can only do so much. You might just make it worse, Connor advises. Well, if you've got a trick arrow for this situation, 
you'd better get it now. Meanwhile, whistling and singing, Nicholas Catero just watches the city burn. Did I mention that Sean gave me the exercised issue? Yes, unfortunately, yes, I did give you the exercise issue. But, you know, I feel that uh, since I'm taking on two issues, uh, maybe it kind of balances out. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, but I, I really enjoyed this issue. It's a nice, it's a really good job of setting up the characters. And it's also, well, it's not uncommon for the Green Arrow and Green Lantern team to be taking on issues of racism. I mean, if you look at the first actual issue of the uh, Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, uh, Green Arrow, Green Lantern story, uh, racism was a big part of that issue. I will admit in these issues, it tends to be handled, in, in my opinion at least, a lot better than it was back then. But that just could have been the sensibility and the way the writing was back then. I think Chuck Dixon has a more a more subtle hand on it. Definitely. Um, I also... Uh, I think the character of Nicholas Catero is not an old time uh, Green Arrow, uh, a Green Arrow villain. I believe he was brought in during the uh, Year One annuals, and he's kind of a modern, uh, co- a modern construct brought up by Chuck Dixon. I okay. don't know whether he was brought in specifically to be a villain for later in this book, but I think that his origin actually comes from the Year One annuals. That came out in uh, like the early '90s. Yeah, I was I was uh, unfamiliar with him. Yeah, I think it 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 it, it was uh, said that he was one of the people who was trapped on the island that Oliver was trapped on. Oh, okay. He was gotcha. uh, he was a uh, I think he was called the Love Boat Killer or something like that. And so uh, he also eventually got off the island and decided to track down Oliver. And this is this I guess is the. Uh, the continuation of that sort of uh, obsession that he had with Green Arrow. But uh, if you'd like to, let's go ahead and uh, go on with notes. Uh, do you have anything on the cover here? I thought it was pretty dynamic, and it certainly gets at the themes of the issue, even though everyone's sort of tinted, uh, sort of a, a, a red color, I guess sort of the hatred mm-hmm. color. You can certainly make out different ethnicities of different groups, and everyone's – it's a big brawl. Yes, it is. It, that That's one of the things I think uh, Rodolfo DiMaggio and Robert Campanella, who are doing this uh, a cover, did a good job. And I think it also helps having uh, Kyle and Connor being the only ones of that aren't colored in this sort of red – and right. I think you've got it right – rage-type right. color. Uh, it makes them stand out more against these people who are obviously being affected by – the idea of racism. Yeah, and I, I don't remember in the issue if there is, you know, a, a Middle Eastern uh, gentleman, but there's a fellow in a turban here. There's a, mm-hmm. it's like a, a someone, you know, from from uh, India, mm-hmm. as well as African Americans and Koreans and you know other other yeah. folks. I, I think and so. You yeah, so you're able to sort of thematically tell what you're what you're going to be getting. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's a very good cover. I like it, nicely drawn. Moving on to page two, I think you and I both had uh, something about the symbolism of Ollie being on the cross, which, yes, I guess there's always, it's really not a very subtle thing. And it's, it doesn't seem to be one of Chuck Dixon's 
you know, it doesn't, it seems out of place for Chuck Dixon because I don't think he would go for the sort of very stereotypical slap you in the face kind of imagery here. But maybe that's just, I don't know, to be blatant to get, to get it across at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously, I think, all about the only non subtle moment. And we, and we do sort of get it out of the way. Mm -hmm. And then we do move into some more nuanced, uh, takes on 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 the issues here uh, as a piece of art i actually really think there's some uh, impressive work here mm -hmm. uh, you've got you said ali uh is on the cross his hands and feet have been impaled by arrows mm -hmm. they also got the uh, wound in the side mm -hmm. which sometimes gets missed uh, by artists yes they're they're uh, obviously they're obviously doing the christ imagery very well here and I do notice here that the uh, the arrows do seem to be in the hands rather than uh, the tri you know it, it's traditional in Christ imagery for the nails to be in the palms of the hands but if you if you think about the actual physicality of it that doesn't work and uh, technically when people were crucified they were crucified between the bones in their forearms. So right. there's a little bit of, I mean, it's stylistically correct, but I guess not anatomically correct. But <laughs> that's just and, nitpickery. And and in this case, he is being held held to the cross also by barbed wire mm -hmm. around, which I'm surprised there's not a streak going across his forehead. Mm -hmm. I think there's clearly us. some a crown of thorns potential. Mm -hmm. Maybe they drew the line at that point. Yeah, that's that yeah. maybe that's pushing it too much. I, yeah, I think that might have been might have been a crossing line a bit. But yeah, it's it's good imagery and like I said, not subtle. But I think this is the most overt in your face kind of thing that we'll be getting in this book. And it is uh, from a narrative standpoint. This is from Katero's mind. Mm -hmm. This is his dreamscape. Yes. And so the fact that it is not subtle. Well, it's, it's uh, him it's probably appropriate because it's it, it's you know, you're seeing what's going on in his mind. True. And Katero definitely does have that sort of Hannibal Lecter type vibe. In fact, the sequence where he's being taken from uh, what is it? He's being taken to Spokane <clears throat> in the uh, back of the uh, prison right. van is very uh, reminiscent of the scene. Oh, very reminiscent of the, the escape scene in Silence of the Lands. There's a lot of things going on where he's being very manipulative. I, I, I like the fact that throughout this, we never get a definitive answer on whether Katero's manipulativeness is an actual superhuman power or whether it's just the underlying feelings between people are being brought to the surface because of his speech. Right. I, I like that I, that's left up to the reader. Again, that's a nice subtlety, a nice nuance. I'm reading it that he probably does have some mild sort of push type of power, but mm -hmm. it's certainly, that's totally my interpretation and certainly reading into it. it that, that is never made clear, which is a nice touch. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like that scene of the escape on pages five and six. They're just a, two pages of eight panel layouts mm -hmm. and there's a lot crammed in a lot of story oh, happening yeah. in those two pages because you have so many individual panels and it's really effective because you have to get across the speech part of it 
And so you have to have lots of dialogue and back and forth and misunderstandings between the two between the two people and the start of a fight. And so having such a having this type of gridded layout lets you have a lot of dialogue in just two pages. Mm-hmm. And uh, despite it being the, the eight-panel grids, there's a lot of good artwork in here, and it's very uh-huh. moody. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of times uh, in 90s books, when the coloring gets kind of dark like this, it gets kind of muddy. St- it's still throughout the this book, it's the I think it might be the line work that helps make it pretty crisp and makes the characters distinct, especially when you, you have the characters coming out from sort of the gray backgrounds. We have one better lit and one in the dark, right, but I, I, right. I enjoy it. It's, it's a good way to get both dialogue and artwork uh, depicting what's going on in these characters' minds and what Katero is trying to do to them. Um, after that, on page seven, where he actually does his escape and, uh, you know, takes the gun, you know, kind of takes the gun away from one of the uh, guards and has shoots the other one in the, uh, in the uh, cab. It's, it's dramatic and violent, but again, thankfully, it's not that kind of gross-out violence. It's it's just it's just violent and uh, frightening enough to get you realizing that something bad's going on, but it's not gory. So I'm glad that we're still not to that era yet. Yeah, I mean, this is like a good action movie, not a not a horror movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, we do see Katara walking away from the from the wreckage, and he does have that very sinister look and that smile on his face that's so uh... but then uh, then we move on to hovercrafts and that's always cool <laughs> yeah what when, when i first got to that scene there's a full page uh, full page you know splash page of these hovercrafts and the, the comment that the streets have never been safer so i wasn't sure if this were police sort of police presence sort of a giuliani sort of amped up into uh you know, in in into the DC universe, or whether this is uh, it turn it it turns out to be these are the bad guys, but mm. I, I did not get that right away. Yeah, they do have kind of the look of you know what you get with the uh, special crimes unit that in uh, right. Superman right. they've got that sort of armor, and you know the technology is pretty advanced. But uh, initially you could you could feel that, but then later on through the story we realize that yes. These are part of the problem. Was it common for DC books to take place in a real place? This is in Manhattan. Uh, no, Green Lantern at the time was one of the few books that uh, really took place in a specific uh, American city. Uh, Green Lantern switched between Los Angeles. Uh, uh, he did a lot of stories where his mom lived out there and between New right. York. In fact, I think it's kind of interesting, especially with uh, – uh, Connor and his sensei coming to town that his supposedly Kyle's apartment is in the real world. And I'm using air quotes up to the microphone <laughs> supposed to be somewhere near Dr. Strange's uh, house in the uh, Marvel universe in New York. So in fact, uh, in some of the earlier issues of Green Lantern, he met with a character that was supposed Supposed to be an analog of Wong, who was uh, Doctor Strange's <laughs> manservant or That's his great. assistant. So it was never really. It was just Im- kind of heavily implied because you know he was there and then suddenly he disappeared. But it was, yeah. This is one of the few books that has a 
an actual representation of the city rather than metropolis or gotham or coast city or what have you so i I think that that allows a little bit more realism in the book yeah i I recently read the uh the eight issues of static shock from the new 52 before it was canceled oh yeah and that took place in new york and they had very specific uh, you know addresses and intersections which i assume was accurate you know you wouldn't you wouldn't put that in a book if it if it wasn't mm-hmm. but it was a little jarring you know to, to, for a dc book to be taking place in a real city with some pretty I assume accurate uh, geography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that can work to your benefit and to your detriment sometimes because a lot of times if people aren't specific with it, people who do know where this location is could say, "Well, how can that be happening? That's you know X number of miles away. How could if he have gotten running from this place to this place in this amount of time?" But uh, yeah, and you know, we're we're uh, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Yeah. In, in, in terms of the pages, but the imagery of the Statue of Liberty thematically is important mm-hmm. in the story. So I guess that's pro- they they probably worked it backwards from there. Mm-hmm. You know, we need the Statue of Liberty. Okay, we sort of need to be in real New York then. Mm-hmm. I do like uh, the relationship between uh, Connor and his sensei, and I I do feel uh, his pain of being a vegetarian and trying to get something to eat on the. Uh, the street corners of New York. That's... Yeah, street food is not easy cuisine for a vegetarian. No, and I, I love it how, you know, he says we've got sauerkraut, and then of course he says, "Oh yes, yeah, swimming <laughs> in animal fats." So I just, I, I love the character. I love the kind of naivete of Connor, but it's not naive. It's not ignorance. It's not. He's not a stupid character. He's not incompetent. He's just not worldly wise. And there's there's more of a gentle innocence almost. Exactly. And I I like that. I like about it. I like the fact that he is a he's a major badass. Supposedly, he uh, actually had an encounter with Lady Shiva and Mm -hmm. he didn't take her down in the DC universe, but he held his own. So when you're doing that, you're pretty awesome in, in the fighting realm. So uh, I like the fact that they're pairing this character who is, like you say, somewhat innocent with being such a competent fighter. And that's that's uh, well displayed where he's able to pick up just mm-hmm. one of these street corner, quote unquote, authentic ninja bows and <laughs> take out these guys on the hover cycles or on the hovercrafts. You know, that's just that's a testament to how awesome of a character he is. And, he, and of course, he does a jumping flying kick and takes the other guys out. So. But, yeah, the, we kind of get the idea that these guys aren't protecting the general populace. It's not something that Giuliani has put out or something that the police has put out from their uh, comments about uh the market is owned by legals. It hires illegals. It steals jobs and money from real Americans. Give them a taste of the cluster gun, Phil. So you're getting kind of off this that these people are mercenaries who are being hired to incite racism. So. Right. And then, and and then my favorite quote unquote line of the issue. I think I can see some green cards getting canceled here. Jeez. <laughs> that was a bit over the top. Yes, it was. <laughs> Actually, on that scene, there's a nice shot. I think uh, the third panel, nice shot from above of the bullets mm-hmm. ricoch- ricocheting off the street 
And I mm. thought that was a nice touch. That's not something you see uh, a lot of. Yeah, the the gun is a bit weird. It looks like it's shooting. It doesn't look like it's shooting necessarily bullets. It looks like it's shooting little discs of some sort. I don't know. It'll look, it it looks a little bit like uh, it it could be something from ROM. Mm-hmm. It's got a little neutralizer sort of feel. Yeah, it, yeah. It's it's not a round, uh, you know, chamber that things are coming out of. It's you know almost something you would slide your credit card into. Yeah, but uh, then we get uh, Connor and Kyle. You know, taking down the bad guys and Kyle, uh, ringing, you know, doing some more of his clever constructs with coming up with his own little, uh, hovercraft or jet cycle exactly. thing. And, uh, I do have to comment that these guys' armor is incredibly 90s. Uh, just the, just the headpiece, which looks like a kind of racing bicycle helmet with the, Cylon one-eyed mask thing. <laughs> it's it's again some more goofy '90s aesthetic, but uh, it's it's fun. Yeah. And uh, after everything's kind of died down, we get uh, the introduction to uh, Bill and Sandy, who are going to be two of our sort of secondary characters throughout this run, and they're going to be kind of the ones that sort of are the gauge for how bad the uh, idea of the racism in the story is going on. Yeah, I, you know, I, I like uh, personalizing it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a nice, it's, it's a nice, again, sort of narrative, authorial choice. Well, and I think throughout the book, uh, their, their sort of uh, descent into, you know, racism against right. each other, uh, you know, kind of shows, you know, kind of parallels what's going on in the issue. And it's a, it's a nice way to personalize the idea of uh, the racism that's going on throughout here. Right. Right. But it's, it's nice that they start out as just, you know, friends and neighbors, but because of the situation going on around them, it, it falls apart. It falls apart between them. Right. And, and, and they're clearly, you know, good friends asking about each other's wife and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they clearly have a long, a long-term solid relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, that leads us to, again, another, sort of silence of the lambs, uh, <clears throat> put the lotion on its skin or it gets the hose again kind of feel with Katero having this family trapped in this sort of underground dungeon, I guess near the wharf or somewhere near like the warehouse district. Right. And uh, uh, I do like the fact that he mentions on, oh, what is it? I guess it's page 20, panel two, the, fr- the first page where it gets uh, that sort of dark look and Katero is bringing the happy meal to them. That uh, he mentions soda cola, so <laughs> that's a nice callback to the actual official beverage of the DC universe. So, and again, that's that's sort of a weirdness again with placing uh, again, I, I with placing the story in the real world and yet having all of these unreal uh, companies and that sort of thing again on that Static Shock issue or uh, series that I read. That's what was really disconcerting about it. it was not just that it was in New York, but it was in New York with clearly, you know, made up, you know, mocking sort of of names of companies mm-hmm. that they weren't using the real names of companies. They were using analogs and it just it was very inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, one of the risks that DC runs when they try to be a little in the real world and a little not in the real world. Yeah, that makes sense. There can be a little, you know, bumping out of the story. Mm-hmm. 
My next note isn't until uh, page 24 with Pegaside. Did you have anything before then? Uh, not particularly. No. I, 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 I did like um, just um, I did like uh, Connor's mom mm-hmm. in general, who I thought for a second was Shadow. It's one of my all-time favorite characters okay. from the, the Mike Grell era of, oh, yeah. of Green Arrow. But then I remember that her identity was actually it was a little confusing for a little while who exactly the mother was, and then I remember it, it was not Shadow. But you know she's again a recurring character, and I think she has some nice character development as the story goes on as well. Oh, definitely. It's it's not she's portrayed as a very initially when you see her, she's kind of a shallow. I just want to go shopping type female character, but throughout the book, she. You get to see that she's a very strong character, a very exactly. strong female character, and I like her in the book. Uh, I just wanted to comment that, again, I love Kyle's ring constructs, and on that one splash page, that they're flying through the streets or through the skies of New York on winged pegasi. That's just that's just an awesome idea. It, I, it, I, is, it is genius and eye-catching and terrific. Mm-hmm. I, and it's really well it's really well drawn here they, they, it looks good and it's a it's a fun way to get around it's 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 distinguishing Kyle again from the former Greenlanders because you would think you know how would just be carrying Ollie around in like a bubble which is boring. Right. this is I, flashy and stylish and I like it I, I I wonder about the nuts and bolts of creating something like this whether this is Chuck Dixon saying I need flying horses or if it's Chuck Dixon saying, "I need something awesome," you know, you know, at the point of knowing what the what the what the artists can do. You know, some artists sort of classically, they're artists who don't like doing westerns because they can't draw horses and cows. Mm-hmm. And you know, sort of, you, you wonder just how that communication works. You know, if if this were the Marvel method, you know, this would have been the artist in really in control of this. It's just sort of wonder the 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 nuts and bolts of how that works out. I agree. You know, I, I I'm wondering if it was Dixon asking him to do that, but he did a good enough job, and it's very very eye catching, and it's uh, you know it's a nice stylistic change from the other Green Lanterns, so I like it. Right. But, yeah. Or if he just says, "Give me something awesome." Mm-hmm. But I I do like the next couple of pages where we get the uh, the dialogue between uh, Connor and Kyle about the ideas of you know being of mixed race and how that fits into the American ideal, and you know. <clears throat> how the uh, Green Arrow and Green Lantern team often fought against the, uh, right. you know, the 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 evils of racism. So it's it, it's nice again. It's nice that they have callbacks to the, uh, like I said, the O'Neill Adams series. But right. uh, it, again, it's not it's not preachy. And I know you have had to cover a couple of issues on the quarter bin. Well, specifically one, the bloodshot issue, where it got pretty preachy. So I'm glad that we're not seeing this here. Right, right. Yeah, th- yeah. What when we get to the end of this, at the end of the coverage, talking about all three issues to do a little compare and contrast. Uh, I, I uh, yeah, uh, I think that to that issue will be interesting. We get the introduction of our two main antagonists. Uh, we get uh, first of all uh, Phipps, who is the uh, white guy, who I guess is supposed to be the sort of conservative analog or the idea of the sort of very right-wing hardline conservative analog who's preaching you know there are too many immigrants and you know people of color are are hurting this country 
And uh, I'm glad that uh, the sensei just realizes this isn't this isn't you know free speech. This is hatred. Right. He he's he's not being he's not being sucked into this. So I like it. And of course, the next page we get the the polar analog of that. And I don't know how you know. I I think they're playing extremes here because we can see. At least I think I can see some of this in modern politics. There is this kind of thing, but this is just being ramped up to to 11. This is being turned up all the way. And it's an uncomfortable thing, but I think they're approaching it in, in a manner that's not belittling the reader yet. So. Right. And I like, I, I like what Dixon's doing here, making the – it also African American characters who are being riled up about immigration. Mm-hmm. That it's it's a much more diverse group of hatreds here mm-hmm. than well, just a, a white guy who hates everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and you're, I like... you're pulling on everybody's. You're pulling on mistrust of of African Americans towards immigrants who are coming and being successful quickly. And how is that happening? Mm-hmm. Or and 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 so it gets a lot more nuanced than you might expect. And I, I do like that there's also an, an African-American character in the bar who's saying, look, this isn't right. He's he's not falling into right. the idea that, you know, it's it's us against them. And I like that he's portraying that there are people out there who are realizing this kind of hatred just doesn't get anything done. So it's and the unfortunate thing is, as we see a couple of pages later that he's the one who pays the ultimate price That's right. that it's not the people who were actually espousing the hatred and espousing the racism it's the person who was trying to denounce it that's the one who's the victim in all of this so that's uh, that's uh, another really powerful point in the story on on page 33 where the redheaded cop does kill the guy mm-hmm. i'm confused about what her name is or maybe there's two characters with guns, because at, at the top of the page, her partner says, no need for that, Donna, holster that thing. And then shortly after that, someone says, Sharon, put it away. Mm-hmm. So a little confused who Donna and Sharon were. If there were two people with guns there, or if there was a little miscommunication. I don't know, because I'm, I'm looking at the page where Katero gets thrown through the window. Then we see them right, come the next out. page, the next page. And we go, as she says, no need for that chair and holster, holster that thing. And my book says, look, officer, we don't want trouble. Whoa, with- whoa, 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 whoa. Go back. Okay. The top of that page where the redheaded cop says, everybody show hands. What it, does the guy say? In in my book, it says no need for that, Sharon. Holster well, there that we thing. go, because mine says no need for that, Donna. Holster that thing. Huh. I yeah, I'm, I'm, they- I, I'm reading from the Emerald Allies collection well, i wonder why they tri- because the net on the next Cause, panel because the next page it says sharon yeah the next panel so, it says sharon put it away and then you know you get the shot of him or of her shooting him so so i'm believing you have the corrected version uh where, I'm, the, I'm where the names are are congruent yeah that but that's odd in the uh in the trade because i'm i'm looking at from the original issue so oh. that's weird so something got flipped in the in the reprint Maybe so. That's bizarre. It's odd that you'd find that the 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 reprint or the collected would have a mistake in it. But uh, every once in a while, it happens. Hmm. But that leads us to another scene with our uh, our two shop owners, and we see the uh, 
the tension of the uh, whole racial issues coming through the town kind of wearing on them. And, uh, you know, I like the the last panel on that page where they're walking away and yeah. it's got that sort of ethereal feel where they're all mm-hmm. in silhouette and the rest of the background is just white. It's a nice it's a nice little image in that panel. Yeah. And as you said, as this relationship gets more tense, uh, that's an, an, an analog in a microcosm for what's going going on in the entire city on a larger scale. Mm hmm. Then we get to the uh, GBS building. And again, this is another thing, uh, because GBS was more suited to, at least WGBS was more suited to Metropolis, but I guess they could have a station in Manhattan or in New York. But just the idea that there's a news station that's so, I don't want to say corrupt, but unscrupulous maybe. that they, Crass? Yes, definitely crass. That would be willing to promote these two people who are just spewing such bile in order to garner ratings. And I, I don't know. I'm certain both people could point to either MSNBC or Fox news and say, well, what are they doing? They're doing the same thing, but yeah, again, it's, it's, there are parallels in the real world, but again, this I think is just amped up to 11. So exactly. Yeah. The, uh, in general, the news media does not come off really good in this story. No, I think, <laughs> and I think that's one of the things that Chuck Dixon likes to do. And the last thing that I read, uh, the crossover between Chuck Dixon and uh, um, Ron Mars, where they did the uh, mm-hmm. uh, hard traveling heroes and next generation one, he also had some sort of negative things to say about someone wanting to manipulate the media. Uh, it was it was a very is a very we'll use the news to get our idea out there. So I think he has kind of a negative opinion of the uh, media as uh, information givers. So, but uh, after that, we get uh, Connor and Kyle on the back of the dragon going down to try and try and quell things, and and Katero whistling his little ants come marching song, and we get the ending of the issue where there is a. Pretty much at the beginning of a race riot starting in Manhattan. So, and I yeah. like the I like the imagery on that last page is you no know, Green Lantern and Green Arrow back to back fighting a mob, which is definitely a callback to some of those original hard traveling heroes. Definitely uh, Im- imagery. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is a really good start to a series of issues, and we'll see how it uh, how it continues on after we take this little break. Uh, play a couple of promos and uh, we will come back with Green Lantern number 92. Oh my God, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Neymar and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? 
Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. It was the dawn of the Third Age of Comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. And we are back. So let's go ahead and jump right in to Green Lantern number 92. It was cover dated 1990, November 1997 and released on September 3rd, 1997. Cover price is $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was Hate Crimes Part 2, Fanning the Flames. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Terry Austin, colors and separations were worked by Robert Schwager, Letter was Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor Dana Curtin, and editor was Kevin Dooley. Panning out from the window, we see the talking heads of Silas Bramlett and Austin Phipps spewing forth their one-sided polemic before the prerequisite garbage can comes crashing in, breaking up the message. <laughs> it's always a garbage can. Once on the street, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner and Green Arrow Connor Hawk are caught in the middle of a full-scale riot. Kyle prepares to ring up something to end the violence, but gets conked out by every Green Lantern's weakness, being knocked on the head with a blunt object. Not even a blunt yellow object. Strangely enough, just getting hit on the head is pretty prerequisite for taking out a Green Lantern. <laughs> Connor comes to help his comrade back to his feet, but before Green Lantern could get his wits about himself, the two hear the familiar sound of the hovercraft of the goons who were attacking in the last issue. Cal springs into action, taking the hover cycle hoodlums out, while Connor does his best to contain the violence on the streets. Letting one of the Hawkman rocket cycles go, Kyle rings up a labyrinthine maze to separate the fighting factions, then meets with Green Arrow to interrogate the downed terrorist. A ring construct lion later, and the duo find that the man behind these wonderful toys was none other than Milo Armitage, Connor's arms-dealing stepdad. Cal shackles the two thugs for police pickup and wonders how they can fin- how they can convince Connor's mom to stop from boning an arms dealer. But as the twenty-something heroes ponder their plight, Nicholas Katero looks on from a darkened alleyway, singing his creepy ants come marching song. Cut to the GBS building, where Kelly Curtis is finalizing the contract between the managers of Silas Bramlett and August Phipps, or Austin Phipps, to have them both appear on the network. 
The two reluctantly agree, but when they leave, they mention that both that the deals were made under duress, as both of their families are being held captive by the man who gave them the respected tapes of Phipps and Bramlett. We then cut to the sewer grate, where a creepy Katero looks down on the captive families. The families plead for Katero to release them, but the Lecter wannabe says that they have to put the lotion on the skin, or else they get the hose again, or, <laughs> or that he still needs to keep them until his final plan plays out. Walking in front of these racially tense newspaper vendor, Kyle and Connor pick up the latest paper and find that the race-baiting talking heads are planning to have a debate in Central Park. After a discussion about free speech, the two head to Radu's coffee shop for a couple of cappuccinos and some more discussion. Radu gives his own story of how he was unfairly treated due to his nationality, and Kyle and Connor chime in with their own ethnic origins as well. This is all broken up by the arrival of Jade, who has come downstairs to tell Kyle that she'll be out of town for a few days on a photo shoot and to playfully flirt with the awkward Connor. As she departs, Connor's sensei, Master Jansen, comes in with a videotape of Phipps and Bramlett that he feels that something is wrong with. Discovering it is more than the monk not knowing how to operate a VCR, Kyle takes the tape over to apartment mate Nathan to see if he can run it through his video editing equipment and see what's up with it. Going up to his apartment, Nathan confirms the Sensei's concerns, saying that the images were actually composited from the image of one person. And when Nathan links the two images together, Connor looks at shock at the image on the screen. The image of Nicholas Catero, his father's deadliest enemy. Yes, uh, this is uh, this is a nice continuation uh, about the book. There's a lot more talky talk about the racism that at moments gets a little heavy handed. I don't think Mars has quite the subtlety that Chuck Dixon does in the writing, but it's never hitting you in the hitting you over the head with it. Yeah, a little less nuanced and subtle, but certainly well within pretty solid, uh, no solid range. Very mm. good. Um, I, I will admit, and maybe this is just, and this is always just personal preference. I prefer Banks's art to Braithwaite's pencils, but it doesn't mean that Braithwaite's aren't good. I just think, uh, Banks has a better, a better look for it. And I think it's just more of a classic sort of George Perez type style. Right. And Braithwaite's seems to be a bit more, not cartoony, but a bit more angular and not quite as, uh, you know, standard heroic type, but, uh, uh both artwork is really good. Uh, let, uh, I want to talk a little bit just to the, just to cover the cover. I really, really like this cover, and I think it's a great idea of showing the dichotomy. Obviously, half of the cover is black and half the color is cover is white. You've got the two characters uh, in their sort of stances, getting ready to, you know, essentially beat some ass. And I think the the coloring on it really makes it, especially with Kyle, the the glowing energy from his ring uh, radiating off of it and onto his costume. It's a really dynamic issue or a really dynamic uh, illustration here. And uh, I also like the uh, I also like the uh, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, 
hybridized symbol that they've got between the thing, the, oh, the right, lantern right. with the arrow between it, that also has the sort of yin-yang thing going with it. I really like that. Yeah, I like that all all three of these issues, you know, this is a Green Lantern issue, but it's got Green Lantern, Green Arrow, mm-hmm. you know, up, 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 across the top of the issue. And the, the other two, the Green Arrow issues, have Green Arrow, Green Lantern mm-hmm. across the top. So you're, you're getting some some more of that recognition of the throwback nature of mm-hmm. a team up like this. Oh yeah. And it, it uh, the, the, I guess if there was one negative thing and I've commented about this a little bit, I think with Terry Austin inking, he likes, he has an affinity for drawing people with really a bunch of teeth and we get, uh, yeah, Connor over here, Connor's just ridding. Gr- grimacing and yeah, yes. got that, got all, all his teeth bared. Mm-hmm. Um, moving into the book, we get the stereotype of the TVs playing the essentially expositional news network, letting us know what in the storefront window, each of the TVs spewing out whatever is being said. And of course, even though it's behind thick glass, everyone can hear <laughs> what's going on. And even though the store is closed, they're wasting their electricity mm-hmm. by exactly. having the, the by, by having the the TVs on. And as you said, at such a volume as to. <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah. again, it's just another trope. And of course, the trope Absolutely. of someone smashing the window with a sure with a garbage can is another another one. But then we move to the uh, to the oh, this is a glorious two page splash of yeah. the two heroes just back to back again, ready to take on this chaos that's all around them. Um one of the neat things I found on this page is the indicio, you know, all the people who are writing the book. It's not uh, placed underneath the title that we get on the on top of the third page. It's all written around within the, uh, you know, during on the signs and over the awnings, over buildings and stuff. And I, I like it when they're able to integrate that into the book. It's it's kind of neat. In and, fact, and 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 for such a dramatic shot as this. Those these two pages, you know, going out of their way to not interrupt that flow mm-hmm. with yes, this is a comic book, and here are the here's the name of the writer and the name of the artist, you know, in a in a box that would take up space. Mm-hmm. The way it, it's integrated in, it's yeah, it, it definitely know, it, allows it, for the artwork to to absolutely to demonstrate itself a lot better. Yeah. After moving on to that, uh, of course, we get to the page four, and it's a common trope. I don't know how how many Green Lantern books you have read, but <laughs> even back in the Silver Age, Hal Jordan was constantly getting whacked on the head and knocked out. So, look, when you've not... got the most powerful weapon in the universe, you need to have, you know, <laughs> maybe a glass forehead, a glass jaw <laughs> is is a is a reasonable weakness. Okay, I'll I'll give you that. You know, we'll we'll let that slide. But um yeah, that's it, it's just it just amuses me. <laughs> uh, then on uh moving on to page 5 where uh, Kyle flies off and Connor Connor takes out one of the police who was about ready to uh go to town on one of these people yes. who was down on the ground. <laughs> he shoots an arrow through this person's police baton. I'm sorry, but that <laughs> is awesome. I, these these tricks, you know, the trick arrows 
I was never much for the the bolo arrow or the punching right, bat or sure. the fist arrow. You know, those didn't really. But when he uses the arrows to do things like this, that's always cool. I always like that in the books. I don't really have any notes until page eight. Did you have anything prior to that? Yeah, that's what I have. When okay. They- they sort of take down these guys on the hovercrafts mm-hmm. and, you know, find a, a white guy and a black guy as the, uh, you know, the instigators of this. And I said, I, I just like that the organization stirring up racial hatred evidently has a corporate diversity initiative. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's a good sign. Well, they're they're trying to be they're trying to be culturally sensitive and in their in their matters of <laughs> and, and, uh, fomenting and, race riots in their hiring practices they're a very diverse group <laughs> that well i think a they, very effective affirmative action program they, they have to follow that if they want to get government funding i guess <laughs> i don't know but yeah i thought it was kind of amusing and, and i think this you know it may have been one of the little more heavy-handed parts of the book where oh the people who were being racist actually don't really care about race how amazing is that so eh. it, it, it is what it is though but it does allow kyle to ring up a giant lion construct to threaten these guys <laughs> now I, I i i understand the fear factor but would a ring construct wild animal do actual physical damage oh I mean, he's, he's 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 using it to threaten them you know, I've I've always been under the assumption that when Kyle uses anything to hurt people, and this was kind of addressed back before we did the uh, fatality story, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that when Kyle shoots at someone with a bullet, it's kind of like a rubber bullet. It hits them, gotcha. and incapacitates <laughs> them, but it doesn't, he's not allowed to kill them. So if he were to attack them with a lion, it would definitely have weight and it would definitely have uh, ferocity and I guess it could slash at them. But chances of them doing any deadly or vital damage is is not impossible, but is it's not supposed to happen. So, yeah, I think I think it's Maybe, a fear fact. Yeah. So to be, you know, to to be fair, I think I would be scared enough to uh, spill my guts. Well, and I love the I love the little pose that Kyle is doing at the top of this panel on page nine. The sort of Pee Wee Herman big ear thing of what? <laughs> what? I can't hear you. I, I, I love the heck out of that. Now, Katero on this, the way Banks draws him at the uh, bottom of the page is a little bit different. Um, back in the other issue, he looked a bit more. He looked a bit more Asian, and I don't know. I don't know if he's just. He he looks a bit more African American here, but I don't know if that's just yeah I don't know I, yeah he does look different. A, not to give him a little ad, non-specific ethnicity, but uh, what have you. Yeah. And then again, uh, on the next page, we get the two people who are the uh, managers for Vips uh, and Bramlett, and oh, surprisingly enough, the black man is the. Uh, is the person who's the manager for the uh, white person who's spouting racism, and the white person is the person who's for the black person who's spouting racism. So it's 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 a mix-up. You would expect it to be the opposite way around. Ugh, this is I think this is the part in the book that kind of irked me, where they where it was just uh, assumed that obviously. You know, you're going to be supporting this guy because he's your ethnicity, and you're going to be supporting this guy because he's your ethnicity. Yeah, I, I, 
I think that may have been okay if we hadn't had that a couple pages ago where we joked about, you know, the the guy stirring up the race hatred were an ethnically mixed group. Mm-hmm. It sort of hits that same sort of ringing that same bell two pages later. Yeah, it, it, it does. It does kind of smack of being this is probably one of the few parts in the book that gets kind of heavy handed in your face. But eh, yeah, I, but there's something about I, I I do like the fact that for these guys, the most important color is the green, mm-hmm. that it's about business. Well, and that's what we're it's, seeing. It's, it's it's not about race. Mm-hmm. That's what we're seeing, especially with this uh, Kathy person. That she doesn't care that it's uh, going to be causing any violence amongst the community, or if it's going to be uh, causing problems with people of different races. She just wants the ratings. So that's that's pretty despicable. And I think again, that's uh, you know you know that's telling of you know I think Dixon probably writing this of his. Maybe not mistrust, but his dislike of the media in general. But, you know, what happened? Uh, to me, this scene is saved a little bit by that reveal at the end of it of who the people in the dungeon are. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, why these guys are, are actually going along with this pretty wacky plan. Yeah, I agree. That's that's nice that we get the idea that these guys are doing this under duress. They don't want to be selling this kind of hate speech. This is not what they want going on. But they fear for their families' lives. And now we get the reveal that their families are the ones that we saw in that previous issue that are being held underground and then in the dungeon or whatever by a Katero. Right. So right. it's 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 nice that we get that explained because otherwise, you know, them doing this would have just been fallen into that kind of idea of they're they're just doing this for the money as well. Right. We get uh, a little another scene between the two shop owners, and we see that uh, tensions are getting even worse between them. And then uh, Connor and Kyle come walking by, <laughs> and uh, we get some more. We get some more build up between Connor and Kyle. We get some more uh, conversation between them. And and yeah, to me, that this conversation had again a bit of a Ollie and Hal. Mm-hmm. discussion about how far does free speech go what are limitations etc et, et cetera so you know a bit of a throwback I mean certainly you know this is the appropriate place yes in a green lantern green arrow team up again to be addressing these issues again yeah we've had the action scene at the beginning that's been resolved we've had the setup for uh, the ongoing what's going to be perpetrated in the final issue, the build-up to the, the debate between them. And we've got this downtime where the characters can actually exposit to each other and talk about what's been going on and their feelings about it. So it's really good. And I like it that they do it in the presence of uh, Radu in the coffee shop. And uh, if you've listened to my show, you know that Radu is one of my favorite secondary characters in the uh, Green Lantern book. He's just... A really interesting, very earthy, very friendly character, and he's right. kind of, in a way, sort of a a surrogate stepfather to Kyle. You know, he's right. kind of that person that Kyle can go to when he has problems and whatever, and just sit down and talk to him, and then plus also get him coffee as well. So, coffee is always good. Now, I do like the fact that I guess you see this on, on fourteen and fifteen that uh, Radu's logo mm-hmm. is a you know. Coffee, no, coffee pot, but it's basically got Radu's face on it, mm-hmm. and I like that just from the marketing perspective. 
Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's a way for Kyle. It's a way for them to show that Kyle is also doing, you know, artwork that he's also, uh, his job outside of being green lantern is a graphic design artist. So yeah, there you go. It's, it's the way Kyle is helping to pay for his rent by, you know, hopefully bringing more people into the coffee shop. Great. But, uh, then we get on page 16, we get Radu telling his story and it, it seems like a very common story of uh, a person from uh, sort of a, an Eastern European country, uh, Kazakhstan or something like that, a former Soviet Republic or whatever, coming to America and getting just the short shrift from everyone because they they feel that you're not from around here. And that it's nice that you know, I, I like I, I like that it's put in here through the character of Radu, because you can imagine that actually going on uh, to this character that you can actually imagine this character's story being a true story of something that had happened. And we sort of joked about the diversity of the villains and, and all of that, the affirmative action program for the villains. But I, I like the fact that here we're seeing again, some subtlety that this guy who's being uh, victimized is a white guy. You know, he's a, he's an immigrant. But, you know, he's he's looks like, you know, the majority population and yet he's still being victimized. Again, I like that they didn't just take the easy approach of saying it's white racists against even maybe, you know, a a Somali uh, immigrant, you Hmm. know, that they picked, you know, a white immigrant to show that the struggles are, you know, throughout the culture. Yeah, it's it's not just it's not not just a, a simplification. So in in that sense, again, that subtlety and nuance of the story is very, I think, a, a real strength of it. Mm, oh, definitely. And and then another strength that I really prefer is on the next page is that we get the introduction of Jade to the uh, the issue. And uh, Jade is always she's one of my favorite. Well, she she's one of my favorite secondary characters as well. And it doesn't hurt that she's just really hot and really cute and uh, she's just a little green for my taste but i'm (laughs) i'm with you other than that and i think uh, i again i love connor's reaction to her just uh, just the fact that he's just so uncomfortable not only from the fact that she's incredibly attractive but also from the fact that she's green and that's the one thing that he noticed about her and i guess if you wanted to take that that could be uh, that could be something related to the whole idea that people just sometimes notice people by their exterior features, and that's what they focus in on. But I think with Connor, uh, the fact is that he notices that, but he's able to overlook that and realize that there's more going on with her. But uh, yeah, I just—it's a great little scene here where you just get the sort of naive awkwardness of Connor being uncomfortable around this person who's. Very flirty with him. Right, very flirty, very hands-on, mm-hmm. you know, rub it, you know, because giving him a back rub or holding him, hugging him, and him just not quite knowing how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think this is one of the unfortunate things that I think a lot of people may have foisted on Connor from this time. There was kind of an idea that Connor might have been gay, and I never felt that in the book. I always thought it was just the fact that he was awkward around women and that, you know, he had been raised pretty much in a monastery that he just 
doesn't know exactly what to do with the the female gender. So I, I I enjoy this awkwardness, but I don't like the idea that this awkwardness is because of his sexual preference. Uh, yeah, they've, I mean, certainly the the monastic lifestyle would certainly be enough, I think, to explain this. I don't know that you need to go for a a hidden message beyond that. Definitely. Um, but that uh, that brings in, uh, you know, Master Jansen to come in. And he on this page 18, he brings this weird box, this Foji box with 160 I think it's 160 VHSs. I don't know what a VHS is. What the uh, heck is this thing? You <laughs> yeah, dated, dated content much? Yes, that's true. <laughs> and, and also, it's one of those things where it is kind of unrealistic that the, uh, the, the video editing software could be able to pick this kind of stuff out, but we'll get to that in a minute. The, you <laughs> and, know, and... and, and and, and that the guy who runs the video software equipment just happens to be in the building. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it it is kind of it is very convenient that one of the oh I think six or seven people who lives in this apartment <laughs> is actual is an actual film editor or film student at NYU and has advanced film editing equipment that can decode this videotape that someone taped off the TV and determine that this is actually a faked image. So yeah, <laughs> kind of, I mean, this is definitely state of the art 1997 equipment. That's true. <laughs> well, and uh, as a college student, obviously you can afford that kind of stuff as well. Exactly. <laughs> but this of course leads to the, the reveal through the enhanced video equipment that the two images of Bramlett and Phipps are actually one person, and that I thought that was a real nice touch. I I did not see that coming. Neither did I. I when I, when I reread this, I was like, oh man, it's it's the same person. He's just altered his video image to make this, and he's playing both sides against each other. And he's he's kind of like I guess a sort of he's got that gives him a sort of Manson type quality, and him wanting to foment. A sort of right. war between the races, so that makes him a even more villainous character and a lot more clever. So, uh, this is a great ending, and the fact that you know uh, Connor says this is one of my dad's most deadly enemies, uh, it it's really bringing up the tension and ramping up the book. So I've i I'm getting I'm loving this. Definitely. But uh, if you're ready, if you don't have anything else to do, we will take another break. And uh, after this, after a couple more promos, we will get in to the final issue this time out, Green Arrow, number 126. Grom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, would remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo Akachin figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell. And I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. 
You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. Hi, this is Professor Allen. And when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guy Show on iTunes or come visit us at bookguys.ca. All right, and we are back to take a look at our final issue this time out, Green, La- Green Arrow, number 126. It was cover dated November 1997 and released on September 10th, 1997. The cover price was 250 US and 350 Canada, and the title was Hate Crimes Part 3, All the Colors of Hate. The writer was Chuck Dixon, penciler Dougie, Dougie Braithwaite. <laughs> Okay. Only his close friends call him that. That's true. Well, he, they do the Dougie, I guess. Uh, inker was Robin Riggs, colorist Lee Lowridge. Separator was Jameson. Okay. Letter was John Costanza. Warden was Darren Vincenzo. And cover was by Rodolf, Rodolfo DiMaggio and Robert Campanella. Flying over the New York skyline in an open-air ring-construct twin-pod cloud car by... Sweet! <laughs> by yours from Kenner... Green Arrow Connor Hawk relates to Greenland Kyle Rayner, the gruesome nature of Nicholas Catero, the man who was behind not only the debate between Austin Phipps and Silas Bramlett, but also the growing racial tensions in the city. Kyle feels that the solution is to simply not show the debate, but Connor thinks there needs to be a more direct approach, mainly threatening his gun-running father-in-law Milo Armitage. Or Armitage. Sabotage. 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 <laughs> Unfortunately, the interrogation is interrupted by Connor's mom, who asks what the two heroes are doing to her husband. Moonday asks if Milo is, has any connection to Phipps or Bramlett, and when Master Jansen confirms Connor's claims, she starts in with a new round of threats. Cal and Connor try and defuse the situation by having Armitage step outside, on a ring construct disc several stories above street level. The heroes question Armitage, who tells them that he just works for the highest bidder and has no interest in Katero's ambitions. Having gotten all the info they need, Green Arrow and Green Lantern let Milo walk back to the apartment, across a series of floating discs, leading back to the top floor balcony. Is that a way to treat your in-law? Actually, I think it is. I think in this case, very, very justified. We get a quick plot point involving the feuding shop owners, and then we cut to the Kyle freaking out the jailed Sky Bandit that they captured in the Green Lantern issue with a ring construct alien in order to get some info on Katero. Some time has passed, and we cut to Central Park, where the big screens are erected, people are gathering, and tensions among the races are becoming strained. At the same time, Connor and Kyle are breaking into the headquarters of the Sky Bandits looking for answers. Cal accosts them with deafening loudspeakers, but gets no real info on Katero's whereabouts. Cut to the GBS building, where the chief of broadcasting and Kelly Curtis are discussing what spin they can put on this broadcast to protect themselves, when Green Lantern and Green Arrow, 
dropped by, offering the tape that will show the whole debate is an elaborate ruse. In the darkened transmission room, the assembled watch as the tape shows the images of Bramlett and Phipps morph into the faces of Nicholas Cotero. Kelly worries how she will keep up the ratings with the Lawson debate, and in exchange for the transmission's location, she demands exclusive rights on the story of Cotero. Kyle and Connor head out to stop the carnage, telling Carrie that she can have her exclusive if she can keep up. Knocking the screens out with a barrage of well-placed arrows, Connor tells the restless crowd that they're being duped, while across town, Cal is investigating the only dilapidated building with a shiny new satellite dish on top of it. We call that a clue. Mm-hmm. Connor addresses the crowd with a heartfelt speech about how none of us are thoroughbred, and it's our different cultures that make us great Americans. Meanwhile, Kyle finds a tied-up family in the building with the with a time bomb with 15 seconds left sitting right next to them. Ringing up a protective bubble, Green Lantern withstands the blast and drops the family safety, safely away from the explosion. Back at the rally, Green Arrow is slashed from behind by a sneaky Katero, who is shocked that this isn't his old foe, Oliver Queen. He's also shocked that Green Arrow beats the ever-loving shit out of him before handing him over to the police. And just to verify that Katero is behind all of this, Green Lantern shows up with the kidnapped victims who are more than willing to testify to Katero's guilt. And in the final scene, we see Bill and Sandy, the two shop owners who are at each other's throat, reconcile and begin their friendship anew. Yay! uh, You know, it's it's nice that we got a resolution, and it's nice that we get the framing structure of these two friends eventually realizing that, hey, this was just completely stupid. I don't know what we got into, but yeah, it does, again, lead credence to the whole idea that there was something more going on than just racial tension. Because you would think if it were just racial tension, these guys would realize that their friendship means more to them. So right. the fact that you're led to make your own decision on whether or not Katero had something, uh, some kind of, like you said, some sort of push power or some sort of uh, metahuman power to do this is left up the reader. But I like that in this story. Yeah. And again, it, it was never, except for a couple of moments, this wasn't a ham-fisted, slap you around the face, don't be racist kind of book. I, I like that fact, and I attribute that to Dixon and Mars as writers. Absolutely. Um, like I said, uh, you know, it does. You know, O'Neill dealt with a lot of these things when he was doing the Green Arrow, Green Lantern book. But I think that was a different era, and I think at the time these issues weren't really addressed all that much in the book, and they were being very. It was kind of a new thing back there. But now they're able to approach it in a different manner that's not quite as – I keep using the word ham-fisted, but it's not as in your face as it was back there. I think people are more receptive to this kind of storyline. At least I'm more receptive to it. Yeah, agreed on both counts. I, I think the earlier stories were probably – you know, I, I sort of chalk that up to the era that they were coming from and that you know, in the era 20-some years later – that this story is being written in, you can you can push at it at it a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Well, I think at that time we were still, you know, just coming out of the 
the the racial tension and the the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination exactly. and all of the uh, the marching with that. So there was still that idea of racism being sort of an institutionalized thing, and it was it was commonplace. And you know, writers it, at the time it was very out of the ordinary for writers to tackle these stories. But uh, I think at the current time it wasn't as it wasn't as trend setting at the time. So writers could do the same sort of stories, but do it with a lot more subtlety and a lot more finesse. And I think they pull it off beautifully here. Uh, going on to the book, I want to start with the cover, which is, it's a nice cover. It's really artistically designed. I love the energy coming off the ring. I just wonder why Connor has the ring on. Because that's not Kyle's hand. That's not Kyle's gauntleted hand. His uh, his gauntlet has you know his fingers free. Right. Yeah, that was my first thought. Because what you have is you've got Connor, you know, knocking an arrow, uh, you know, against his cheek with Kyle's ring. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe it, they're trying to say that they're working together. That this is Kyle's hand. But then you point out that that really doesn't fit either. Mm-hmm. So it's so chalk it straight up to artistic interpretation. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's good artwork and it's really it's really nice. They've got some nice detail on the thing and the coloring with the uh, sort of crackling energy coming out. Oh, it's great, it's beautiful. But yeah, just the fact that Connor is wearing Kyle's ring is just bizarre. <laughs> but after that, you know, after that, moving on to the interior of the book, um, what is it? Page two, the third panel, another. <laughs> Just incredibly cool construct for them to fly around New York City in. I mean, and, I like the flying car, but the sidecar is what mm-hmm. makes it. Well, and it's not quite. I, I I said in my I said in my synopsis the twin pod cloud car from like Empire Strikes Back, but it's, <laughs> it's not quite that. But it is. It's cool, and I like the fact that if you look at it on the uh, at the front of the at the nose cone of Kyle's part of the car, it's got the Green Lantern symbol on it, <laughs> oh which is kind of cool. <laughs> but uh yeah it's just fun uh, i like the i like the construct that 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 kyle's you know being able to come up with Absolutely. um i'm not certain i have not read uh, I, I haven't read the green arrow issues but i'm wondering on page four here at the bottom panel we see armitage has been beaten up prior to this and i'm wondering if it was connor yeah who was responsible for his uh, injuries prior to this. You know, if uh, yeah. Connor was the one who actually put him in traction <laughs> and got his uh, bracelet put him on, put on him. So you never oh, know. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I didn't know here with these scenes with, uh, with the mom, with uh, moon day, if there was sort of a tiger mom and an Asian mom stereotype going on here of the feisty protective, uh, demanding a mother going on there, mm-hmm. or if or if she's just a feisty lady in her own right. Well, I, I think she's I think she's definitely being written in this book as a very uh, she she's finally had that come around, uh, like we see on the next mm-hmm. page, where she's not the sort of doting wife who's ready for you know her husband to pay for everything and provide right. for her. She's actually not going to take any crap from him, and if he's lying to her. She's uh, she's going to take it out on him and she becomes in these couple of pages a very 
strong female character. And I like that. I, I like that Dixon mm-hmm. pulled that off. Yeah, and there's a look that Connor has on, I guess, page five mm-hmm. of when he's saying, I've never seen her like this. <laughs> and that it's like a derp yes. sort of look that he's got. And I, well, it also it also you know harkens back to his sort of naivety that he's not exactly. used to seeing <laughs> women be this assertive and this strong, and he's not used to he's not expecting of his mother being this way. Of course, Kyle is just reveling in it, and I like the on the same pan, on the same panel, you know, he's got the the very amused grin on his face. Yes, yes. Um, the way they the way they threaten to get the information out of uh. Armitage is great by taking him out on a floating disc. Yo, it's got to be 20 stories up. Yeah, at least. Yeah, definitely. And then when they get the information out of him, do they just drop him off over there? No, Kyle rings a sort of demented version of Wipeout for him to get (laughs) back to the building. Don't look down. Don't. Look down. I love this. And it would have been so great if, you know, he, you know, he had a timer up there and uh, you know, every <laughs> second the the uh, the little discs shrunk just a bit. That would be awesome. But of course, I do, I, I, I do think that I hope you've learned a lesson. Milo just doesn't seem strong enough. <laughs> I think there's going to be more than just uh words going on between them. <laughs> I think she's going to, uh, I, I don't think it's just going to be, Oh, well, I think you've learned your lesson now. I think there's going to be more than that. I, I agree. I think that'd be good. The next page we get Sandy and bill just the, the, the escalation getting even further now to the point where they're actually throwing blows at each other. So it's, I think it's really well done that we get this little one-off set piece that sort of solidifies the idea that's going on throughout the entire city. And this, this humanizes and personalizes the idea of the racism that's going on throughout the rest of the story. Yeah. These are just, you know, each each one of these, I don't know if you mentioned that these are just one page scenes, Mm -hmm. you know, sprinkled throughout, sprinkled throughout the series. Mm -hmm. Very, uh, very powerful. I think and. I think part of that is that they're just these itsy bitsy little snippets, but the, but they're communicating so much of that deterioration, and in this case, it's escalated to hostility, mm-hmm. physical physical force between mm-hmm. between the gentlemen. Yeah. Um, as Kyle and Connor go in to interrogate the uh, Sky Bandits, the two people that they captured in the last issue. Uh, Kyle does a weird sort of plastic man type thing. I mean, I, I think plastic man was on the JLA at the time, so he may have been hanging around him for a while, but he does that sort of stretching his ring construct head through the, uh, wall and even through the key of the lock of the jail cell. But then of course he rings up a, uh, a pseudo alien to freak out the uh, guy as well. And, uh, I can tell you, I don't know about you, but uh, the first two Alien movies, they scared the bejesus out of me. Still to that moment. The, the moment in the first Alien movie where um, uh, the, the captain is wandering through the tunnels trying to go there and he shines light on the Alien. for the, that, that still to this moment, you know, just is one of the more terrifying <laughs> moments in movie history. Yeah, but again, like you said, even more great ring constructs from mm-hmm. Kyle. Oh, yeah. 
that leads us to the next page where we get to the uh, Central Park big screen debate and we see these these two cops one looking I don't I don't he doesn't necessarily look white I don't know what ethnicity is but there is another cop who's African American and just the general conversation between them right. just degrades and degrades to them taking taking comments from each other out of context and just it's I really like that because it's not what either one of them is saying. Mm-hmm. It's what they're hearing from the other person. Exactly. I it's, thought that was a really nice touch. It, and and in some ways, that's always the way it is. And I hate to say it, in a lot of ways that arguments get started, it's the way people perceive what is being said that is always the cause exactly. of it. It's not specifically that someone says something meaning to be derogatory or in this case racist it's that someone takes that what that person says and perceives it in that way of course when one person perceives it that way they tend to escalate it and it just and the other builds one gets defensive and, and it builds upon itself and builds upon itself and you know we see this you know i hate to say it we see this in arguing about you know comic book stuff we see this in arguing about movies uh there there are many times that uh, People who love comics and people who love these characters will argue about certain iterations of them and get into such almost knockdown, drag out fights over them. And it's, and it's because of one little thing that a certain person will say about it. So, yeah, it's the escalation of it that's really being done well throughout this book. Definitely. Let's see. Kyle and Connor go break into the area where the sky bandits are. And on this panel, Kyle uses a kind of battering ram. Now, I'm trying to envision who the face of this is because it looks very familiar. You know, on uh, I've got it on page right, eleven right. here. That uh, it's not quite panel. Gorilla Grodd. No, it does. Lo- it does but have it harkens a, towards that. It also has the sort of horn look of mm, uh, Blue okay. Devil. Right. Oh, I gotcha. Uh, so I'm not really certain where he's pulling it from, but it's a, it's one of those. Facial images that looks familiar, but I just can't pin it down. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, then again, you know, Kyle and Connor go in and beat some ass, and Kyle rings up a stegosaurus, which is always nice. (laughs) And then loudspeakers, which I guess is, uh, it's not uncommon, because I know that the military has used loudspeakers. I know they used it down in Panama when they were taking out... Right. Oh, uh, who was Noriega? Yeah, Noriega down there. They were pumping in like uh, Led Zeppelin. I know they were doing that and just to annoy the heck out of him. So, yeah, using loudspeakers to take these guys down is a nice non-lethal way of taking them out. But um, that leads us back to the unscrupulous business practices of the uh, GBS building. And I don't know if this if this person who's the CEO here is supposed to be an analog of anyone, but he looks, he does have that kind of look like an elder news statesman, like a, not quite a, uh, someone from 60 minutes, like a Mike Wallace type person, right, but right. he does have the, or, or even like an, even like a Ted Turner type character. But, right. um, he, he does he's got, have, he's got those red suspenders. Mm-hmm. That's very, that's very Larry King. Yeah. It? Yeah. So yeah, it is. It does give you the kind of idea that they're going for a certain 
mindset of who this person is, but uh, it's not specifically said. But yeah, these people are just completely unholy, unscrupulous. Because as, as, as soon as we find out it's a fraud, ooh, now we've got a scoop, an exclusive. Mm-hmm. Now we can expose the fraud. That'll bring the ratings in. Yes. Genius. It's all, and that's the thing. Again, that's I think that's Chuck Dixon pointing to his negativity about the uh, about the mass media is that it's not about you know reporting what's right and what's going on. It's about what kind of ratings we can get. And I, in my own personal belief, the whole idea of the twenty four hour news cycle has kind of done that kind of thing. And the fact that we have to promote news stories that really don't necessarily mean much of anything because now we have a 24-hour news cycle, so we have to seem, we have to put something out all the time. Not to say that it's, there's no good that comes from that, but I think we're almost at the point where we, can, we might be able to say more harm than good. Mm-hmm. And when some stories are just are a lot of times puff pieces when we can get uh, when we get these and I hate to point to the talking heads but the talking heads on either side who will take an innocuous story like oh say uh Miley Cyrus Miley Cyrus twerking <laughs> and turn it into a national issue while you know there are oh secret documents being leaked when there is oh uh nuclear proliferation going on in other countries when there's you know just actual real stories and we tend to focus on these innocuous things because we have to fill 24 hours of news so exactly but there's my political rant for the episode it's (laughs) over and done with but yeah the fact that these people are trying so hard to get ratings over than doing what's right is just i think it's just dixon just jabbing at the whole you know media empire thing until that connor taking out the taking out the uh satellite or taking out the satellite oh, right. with the arrows i i love it and i love it in um uh i, I read hawkeye as well and i love mm-hmm. it when they take out multiple foes with multiple arrows shot at once as well right, right. but him taking out the satellite dish or the wires for this with uh, multiple arrows fired is always cool. I like it. And then we get to, to Connor's speech about being an American. And this is another thing that I think could have been, if done by a lesser writer could have felt really over the top and really cliched. But I think Dixon pulls back just enough and doesn't make it as treacly as he could that it, that it actually, when Kyle finally comes, or when Connor finally comes down and says, I'm an American, you actually don't feel like you've been talked down to. Yeah, and the, the, I think the most sort of preachiest elements are really maybe that panel and maybe just the one panel before it. Or, you know, might be where you almost got to get to that line but it's over quickly and it's and it's appropriate i mean it does it does fit here Mm -hmm. you really do need sort of a capper onto that i think to that particular message and it's delivered quickly and then we're out of there and we're back to the story Mm -hmm. now the you know the the rescue is pretty standard it's kyle you know ringing them up in a bubble now granted it's a little different bubble i mean uh 
what is it on page 19 where the explosion happens? It's, uh, it's got kind of a leather straps around the bubble. So it's got a little different design, but it's neat. But, um, I did notice on the same page in the last panel where we see Katero, his eyes are glowing red. Now, (laughs) now you could either take this, uh, you can either take this as two things because again, it's not specifically said, but you can either take this as Katero's rage against wanting to try and take down who he thought was Oliver Queen or take down Green Arrow, or you could see this as possibly this being a manifestation of some of his, like you said, push powers or his metahuman genes that are causing these people to have these over-emphasized thoughts about racism. So, you know, it's left up to you, but yeah, it's, uh, I kind of thought, because I I went back and looked, and in some of the other panels where you see Katero, his eyes do have that sort of reddish color. Ah, okay, interesting. And I do like the fact that I know, you know, I understand that this is the, a comic book world, but he really expects the guy to be the dead guy. <laughs> he's he's shocked that the uh, this person is not the guy who he knows is dead. Uh, just it's 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 a comic book world. Yes. I understand dead does not always mean dead. No, <laughs> especially not if you're wearing if you're wearing a costume because in general <laughs> costume heroes never really die. But there is uh, there's another there's a great fight sequences on this next couple of page that just shows how uh, it shows how well Dixon can frame a fight. And I know yes. I know it's not Dixon you know doing the artwork here, but it's it's just really really well done. And it's set to the background of the uh, giant sort of white glowing screen, so you see the characters silhouetted in front of it. It's right. nice. Yeah, that was a nice artistic touch. But uh, it, it it ends you know with uh, you know, Connor taking him down. I love him, you know, snapping his wrist. That's that's cool as well. Yeah. But uh, it ends quietly with the with the two people, you know, who who had gotten into this horrendous, you know, these two people who were friends who had gotten into this horrendous fight between each other, come into grips that this was all just madness. It was all just unnecessary. And in the end, they make up and they're friends again and it's it's a nice ending to this storyline very very much so i i if if i counted right this issue already had 23 pages but i did think that the wrap-up was almost a bit of a bit abrupt i would have liked maybe one more page but i know they already had one extra page Mm -hmm. Uh, but that is the most minor of quibbles it does end up in a way that wraps everything up which is nice yeah, you know the 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 villain is caught, the race war's over, the friends make up. You know this is a a great example, I think, of a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. It just boom, it's self-contained, and I love stories like that. Mm-hmm. And where it's... where there isn't the soap opera nature of one more cliffhanger to one more cliffhanger to one more cliffhanger in you know, in that ongoing, you know the nature of comic books sometimes Mm. that this is a story boom and again this seems to be prior to the issue where it's not written for the trade these were just three uh, granted the uh, 125 was a double-sized issue so there was a bit more going on in there but this never felt like it was being written for the trade it never felt that it was drawn out to be six issues each individual issue 
you know, built on each other and, and it worked all together really well. And it told a, a really good story. And again, thankfully in dealing with a very touchy issue of racism, it never came across as cloying and never came across as uh browbeating the readers. It, it was just gave you a lot of things to think about and gave it to you with some really great artwork and some really great storytelling. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I covered a, a sort of a similar story or a story with a similar theme mm-hmm. on uh, episode seven of the Quarterbin podcast, which was a very extremely heavy-handed action comics 702 with the race-based villain Bloodsport. Mm-hmm. And I think after that, everything else seems subtle. But, yeah, I... But I think this one was legitimately uh, subtle and nuanced. Oh, yes. I, I remember you talking about that. And I remember, you know, it, it ending with Ron Troop sort of being the hero of the on the story, which seemed very coincidental that the the one you know African-American character in the book would be the one to end up the story. And then Superman, of course, you know, ending ending with the line with Amen, brother, I think yeah. is it, <laughs> which is, you know, it's not. It's not uncharacteristic for well, no, it is uncharacteristic for Superman. Amen, brother. That's yeah. That know, one put me a little over the top. If but. he didn't, you know, if if Superman were throwing up the fist and sort of the you know, the the Black Panther thing, that might also be even <laughs> just more out of character. But yeah, thankfully they didn't go for that. But yeah, this was a good story about a touchy subject that was handled well, and it it shows that. I think now DC has moved into the era where writing is taking paramount yes. over mm-hmm. over the artwork. We've moved out of the sort of uh, image, you know, art artistic design. We're, we are getting to the end of the nineties. Mm-hmm. This, ni- this is late ninety seven, early ninety eight, if, mm-hmm. if I so, remember right. So, so you know, we're getting almost to the to the sunset of that era. Mm-hmm. But not to say that there weren't good uh, artists, because I know. You know, the super in the Superman books, you know, with Stern writing in, in those, you know, there were some really good stories in there. But a lot of the early 90s were simple visual. The 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 emphasis was put on the artwork. And I think DC finally realized, especially with the advent. I, and I I hate to attribute this to him, but Grant Morrison coming in <laughs> on the JLA, yeah. that storytelling became paramount for DC and they definitely ran with this and Chuck Dixon and Ron Mars in this storyline in these books have just uh, cemented that idea. So I really enjoyed it. And, and, you know, reading a comic book and being a fan of comic books, you're looking at story and art in combination. And I think what, what each of us as readers brings to that in terms of our preferences varies greatly. I, for one, am mostly a story person. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard, you know, folks like Scott Gardner say, that art can really take them out of a story or they won't, you know, pick up a story or really will really have a negative reaction to a story just because of the art. And that's not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, art has to be really extreme one way or the other for me to even take notice of it. So I'm, I'm, I'm way on the other extreme. I think most people are probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, but for me, it's definitely story first and not just art second, but art pretty distant second. Mm hmm. Now I can kind of I can kind of agree with you and I kind of feel that way as well. I would I would rather have a good story and average art 
than right. have you know amazing looking art and a poor story. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's a good way to put it. I like that. I'm I'm gonna steal that. Oh, well, be my guest, uh, <laughs> Professor Allen. It was just a joy talking to you today about these issues, and I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Um, Glad to be here, Sean. Really appreciate it. I would like to give you this opportunity now to tell the people where they can find you on the internet and what kind of things you're doing out there. Yeah, the uh, I'm uh, one of the rotating uh, co-hosts on the Book Guys show, which is a occasional show. Uh, we do a couple episodes a month about more traditional books, though we also talk comic books, but we talk books and book reviews and book news, and it's it that's still a pretty geeky show. We do lean towards the sci-fi, mm-hmm. and we squeeze in Doctor Who whenever we can, even if it's not related at all to books in any way. But um, but I've been doing that for a little over a year now, and then earlier this summer, uh, my daughter Emily and I started a little network of podcasts called Relatively Geeky. And that can be huh? searched. That I can see be... what you did there. Relatively, ah, <laughs> you see, did you get yeah, that? Huh? Got it. Yeah. Now I, it, it was subtle, but I got it. See, <laughs> we're relatives, and okay. Yeah, when, when you have to explain the joke, that's yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> so you can search that in iTunes, relatively geeky, or find us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com and. On that feed is my solo show, which I've subtly referenced already, the Quarterbin Podcast, where I cover cheap comic books, and that's a, a short-form podcast. Uh, and those, by the way, are my favorite kind of comic books. Mm-hmm. I was you know, listening to, I, I guess it was uh, the Irredeemable Shag, who sort of came up with the idea of Find Your Joy, Yes, that idea in comic books. And I think for a lot of people, it's a character or a... Uh, a particular era. I think for me, it's a price point. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that to me is the secret of a good comic. And that's that I didn't pay very much for it. That is always a good thing. Uh, uh, Emily's show is uncovering the bronze age, uh, looking at comic books from way before she was even born. Uh, and the show that we originally thought would be the side project, the show that we didn't even have a promo for, that we really need to at some point mm-hmm. is uh, the short box showcase. That's our joint show. Uh, in that one, sometimes we'll cover a specific comic run or a trade, but more often than not, we talk about a topic related to comics. So we've covered the ages or the eras of comics, issues with continuity and retcons and reboots, adaptations from and into comics, that sort of thing. And I've got to say that uh, the Shortbox Showcase has been one of my favorite shows because it is a wholly original show about a father and a daughter talking about comics. That's that's something that's never been approached ever before. <laughs> and look, would you please <laughs> would you please tell the Leylands that? Because the lawyers are really starting to annoy me. See, the problem <laughs> is that now that they got that out. By Debonzacor, there's, ugly. there's no ugly. way that you can get the lawyers off your back. I'll, I'll <laughs> see what I can do. Maybe I can uh, talk to Senior Demonzo about that myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hold the, no sway at, over at, at the upcoming uh, Demonzacor Christmas party, if you could just <laughs> mention that, that would really uh, help. I, I don't want to have to get into the, the key exchange. Uh, 
but but again professor alan it has been just a joy talking with you about these issues uh definitely go check out all of professor alan's podcasts they are all wonderful listens you need to check them out if you're not already oh that's nice sean i'm glad to but everyone thank you again for listening come back next friday for another episode of just one of the guys and until then we will see you in seven days bye everyone You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. Ah, children. Uh, you know, just daddy's talking to strangers on the internet about comic books, please. <laughs> Let me talk to this person. I have no idea who he is other than the fact that I've talked to him through a random communication device on the Internet. Please. <laughs> okay. That's going to go in the end. Hey! Uh, hold on. I will be back in a second. Ah. <laughs> uh, when, uh, when, when we were uh, talking with Jack and Eddie mm-hmm. uh, last week... And uh, the outtakes are coming out Thanksgiving Day. So oh. something for you to listen to while you're in line on uh, Black Friday. Or I am not going in on Black Friday. Are you insane? <laughs> or if you just want to you know, avoid your in-laws for a little while. So some, <laughs> some, something to fill your ears with. But there was one point when, you know, in between issues or whatever, that he had to go do something for a second. And I left. And then and I've got the recording going. And Emily is humming. But it's. All by myself, <laughs> don't want to be. So that's definitely in the outtakes. Emily humming awesome. all by myself. So I was tempted to do that as well, which I think I just did. So Did did you see the, um, not the Doctor Who special, but did you see the 30-minute Peter yes. Davison? Oh, that yes. That was absolutely hilarious. That was, that was really funny. That I thought that was pitch episode. perfect all the way through. And uh, I'm assuming you saw the... The 50th anniversary. Yes. Well, we'll talk about that afterwards, but yeah, 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 we'll go yeah. ahead and finish this up.
back in the days, it was CBS, ABC, Absolutely. NBC, and then if you were lucky, you had some UHF channels. Yeah, you may have had an stuff. independent station. But then, then it was PBS. Right. And PBS was where I got all my science fiction and fantasy because on, I want to say on Saturday nights, starting at 10 o'clock, they would run two episodes of a serial of Doctor Who, and that would run up until about oh, 10.45. And then after that, they would run an episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Right. right. So I would, I would stay up on Saturday night. I'd watch Doctor Who, then Monty Python's Flying Circus, and that kind of that kind of sort of cemented my sort of nerd uh, love of comedy and science fiction. So yes, Tom Baker, because he was run by PBS all the time was my doctor. I mean, the amazing thing is I had worst father moment ever Uh back when Emily was maybe six or seven. It was while we were still in Virginia. So it must've been six or seven. And I was watching, I had gotten some of the doctors from uh, on, I think they called it VHS. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> from, from the library. And one of the Tom, I'm pretty sure it was Seeds of Doom. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where Tom Baker is turning into a plant of some kind. Yes. And that's when Emily walks into the room and is absolutely terrified of it. The classic, you know, behind the couch yes. sort of thing. I mean, it was years before she watched any Doctor Who after that. And the fact that she, you know, got into New Who is at least there, there's something there that I did not, uh, you know, did not traumatize her forever. <laughs>